Hello, welcome to the Respiratory Care November 2011 podcast. Sarah, let's get started with our first paper. A bench study of the effects of leak on a ventilator performance during non-invasive ventilation is by Ueno et al. The authors performed a bench study of three ventilators designed for non-invasive ventilation and two ICU ventilators to assess how they coped with two leak levels and zero leak level during non-invasive ventilation. With a two bellows in a box lung model, they simulated spontaneous breathing with a tidal volume of 300 milliliters and 500 milliliters at a pressure support of zero and 10 centimeters water and PEEP of 5 and 10 centimeters water. They affixed the airway opening of the lung model to the mouth of a mannequin head and secured a mask on the face. A medium leak and a large leak were created with different sized holes and PEEP was measured in the presence of leak. Also measured were the actual pressure support values and the calculated deviations from the set pressure support value and the pressure time product of the airway opening pressure below and above baseline. With the medium leak, only the ventilators designed for non-invasive ventilation maintained the set PEEP and pressure support. With the large leak, the pressure support was decreased with all the tested ventilators. With the larger leak and pressure support of 10 centimeters of water, the pressure time product below baseline for triggering increased with two ventilators, and the pressure time product above baseline for supporting the patient's inspiratory effort decreased with all five ventilators. The larger tidal volume increased the pressure time product below baseline with all five ventilators and at all leak sizes. The authors concluded that some of the ventilators compensated for leak better than others. With the larger leak, none of the ventilators maintained the set PEEP or pressure support. Leak around the mask during non-invasive ventilation may cause inadequate support or patient ventilator asynchrony. In their bench study, you know et al. evaluated the response to leaks in ventilators specifically designed for non-invasive ventilation and in ventilators specifically designed for use in the intensive care unit. They found that some of the ventilators compensated for leak better than others, but with the larger leak, none of the ventilators maintained the set PEEP or pressure support. As Cabrini et al. point out in their editorial, there is a potential adverse consequence to reducing leak around the mask, specifically in the form of facial skin breakdown and patient discomfort. Thus, leak compensation is important. Next is the paper, Long-Term Survival in Patients with Tracheostomy and Prolonged Mechanical Ventilation in Olmsted County, Minnesota, by Kojicic and colleagues. They retrospectively reviewed the electronic medical records of adult Olmsted County, Minnesota, residents admitted to the intensive care units at two Mayo Clinic Rochester hospitals from January 1, 2003 to December 31, 2007, who underwent tracheostomy for prolonged mechanical ventilation. 65 patients with a median age of 68 years underwent tracheostomy for prolonged mechanical ventilation, resulting in an age-adjusted incidence of 13 per 100,000 patient years at risk. The median number of days on mechanical ventilation was 24. 
71% of these patients survived a hospital discharge and 55% were alive at one-year follow-up. After adjusting for age and baseline severity of illness, the presence of COPD was independently associated with one-year mortality. The authors concluded that there was a considerable incidence of tracheostomy for prolonged mechanical ventilation. An increasing number of patients require prolonged mechanical ventilation, which is associated with high morbidity and poor long-term survival. Kojicic et al. reviewed the medical records of the residents of a single county who underwent tracheostomy for prolonged mechanical ventilation. There was a considerable incidence of tracheostomy for prolonged mechanical ventilation, and the presence of COPD was an independent predictor of one-year mortality. As discussed by O'Connor in her editorial, more work is needed to optimize the care of ICU survivors who require prolonged mechanical ventilation. Use of Lambda-Mu-Sigma-derived Z-score for evaluating respiratory impairment in middle-aged persons is by Vaz Fragoso et al. The objective of their study was to evaluate the association of Lambda-Mu-Sigma, or LMS, defined respiratory impairment with mortality and respiratory symptoms. They analyzed spirometric data from white participants aged 46 to 64 years in the NHANES-3 and the atherosclerosis risk in communities studies. LMS defined airflow limitation and restrictive pattern were significantly associated with mortality and respiratory symptoms. Consequently, an approach that reports spirometric values based on LMS-derived Z-scores might provide an age-appropriate and clinically valid strategy for evaluating respiratory impairment. The LMS method calculates the lower limit of normal for spirometric values as the fifth percentile of the distribution of Z-scores. Vaz Fragoso et al. evaluated whether the LMS method is valid for evaluating respiratory impairment in middle-aged subjects. They found that in middle-aged persons, LMS-defined airflow limitation and restrictive pattern were significantly associated with mortality and respiratory symptoms. An approach that reports spirometric values based on LMS-derived Z-scores might provide an age-appropriate and clinically valid strategy for evaluating respiratory impairment. Next is the paper by Agarwal et al. entitled Comparison of the Lower Confidence Limit to the Fixed Percentage Method for Assessing Airway Obstruction in Routine Clinical Practice. The objective of this study was to evaluate the misclassification of spirometrically determined airway obstruction arising from the use of the fixed percent method in comparison to the lower limit of normal, or LLN, method for FEV1 to FVC ratio. They reviewed 27,307 spirometry records from adult men and airway obstruction diagnosed based on the LLN versus that based on the fixed cutoff of 0.7. The results were discordant in 6% of subjects. Overall agreement between the two methods was good, but worsened considerably with advancing age. 
5% of subjects who were deemed normal with the LLN method were diagnosed as having airway obstruction with the fixed percentage method. Specificity in positive predictive values decreased sharply with advancing age. The authors concluded that negative age dependence of FEV1 to FVC ratio results in overdiagnosis of airway obstruction in middle-aged and elderly men and underdiagnosis in young men with a fixed percentage method. Airway obstruction should be assessed with the LLN of FEV1 to FVC ratio with the LLN derived from appropriate reference equations. Although the statistically derived LLN for the FEV1 FVC are considered superior to a fixed cutoff value for diagnosing airway obstruction, the fixed cutoff method continues to be used and advocated. Agarwal et al. evaluated the misclassification of spirometrically determined airway obstruction arising from the use of the fixed percent method in comparison to the LLN method for FEV1 FVC. They found that negative age dependence of FEV1 FVC results in overdiagnosis of airway obstruction in middle-aged and elderly men and underdiagnosis in young men with the fixed percentage method and recommended that airway obstruction should be evaluated with the lower limit of normal for FEV1 FVC ratio. Quangier and Rupel write an insightful editorial related to the papers by Faz Fergoso and Agarwal in which they make an evidence-based plea to abandon the use of fixed ratio for FEV1 FVC for diagnosing COPD. Respiratory care work assignment based on work rate instead of work load is by Chatburn and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine the optimal strategy for creating work assignments based on work rate. A focus group used root cause analysis to identify ways to balance assignments based on work rate. The author surveyed employees to assess their willingness to start earlier. They determined the ratio of scheduled to unscheduled work during a 12-month period. The scheduled work comprised administering small volume nebulizer, meter dose inhaler, non-invasive ventilation, and mechanical ventilation. The unscheduled work consisted of all other modalities. The authors also developed a spreadsheet model to assess the effect of shifting the start time on work rate distribution in a representative 24-hour period. The focus group determined that starting treatments one hour earlier would help. 15 of the 24 clinicians surveyed responded, and 13 of the respondents were willing to start earlier. The scheduled workload averaged approximately 55% of the total workload, but there was high variability per assignment area. The spreadsheet model showed that shifting treatment start times improved distribution of work rate throughout the day, but did not guarantee that labor demand never outstrips supply. The authors conclude that basing assignments on average work load leads to periods of unachievable work rate, resulting in missed treatments and staff dissatisfaction. There is only limited ability to reduce peaks in work rate, but staggering treatment times is effective.
In their paper, Chatburn et al. evaluated respiratory care work assignment based on work rate instead of workload. As Ford points out in his editorial, few departments have the information systems needed to accurately capture work rate. However, an understanding of this concept provides managers the opportunity to engage staff and create staffing programs that minimize hourly variability in demand. Next is the paper, Bench Evaluation of Seven Home Care Ventilators by Blakeman et al. In this study, the authors tested triggering with a modified dual-chamber test lung to simulate spontaneous breathing with weak, normal, and strong inspiratory effort. They measured battery duration by fully charging the battery and operating the ventilator with a tidal volume of 500 milliliters, a respiratory rate of 20 breaths per minute, and PEEP of 5 centimeters water until breath delivery ceased. They tested tidal volume accuracy with a pediatric ventilation scenarios and an adult ventilation scenario. They measured and analyzed airway pressure, volume, and flow signals. At the adult settings, the measured tidal volume range was 360 to 426 milliliters. On the pediatric settings, the measured tidal volume range was 51 to 182 milliliters at the set tidal volume of 50 milliliters and 90 to 141 milliliters at the set tidal volume of 100 milliliters. The tidal volume delivered by the Vila ventilator at both 50 milliliters and 100 milliliters and by the HT50 ventilator at 100 milliliters did not meet the American Society for Testing and Materials standard for tidal volume accuracy. Triggering response and battery duration ranged widely among the tested ventilators. The authors conclude that there is wide variability in battery duration and triggering sensitivity. Five of the ventilators performed adequately in tidal volume delivery across several different settings. The combination of high respiratory rate and low tidal volume presented problems for two of the ventilators. In recent years, portable ventilators have decreased in size and increased in performance. Blakeman et al. tested the triggering, battery duration, and tidal volume delivery of seven currently available portable ventilators. There was wide variability in battery duration and triggering sensitivity. Some of the ventilators performed adequately for tidal volume delivery across several settings, but the combination of high respiratory rate and low tidal volume presented problems for others. Effects of two exercise training programs on physical activity in daily life in patients with COPD is by Probst et al. The objective of this study was to compare the effects of two exercise training regimens on physical activity in daily life, exercise capacity, muscle force, health-related quality of life, and functional status. They randomized 40 subjects with COPD to perform either endurance and strength training or calisthenics and breathing exercises training. Both groups underwent three sessions per week for 12 weeks. Before and after the training programs, the subjects underwent activity monitoring with motion sensors, incremental cycle ergometry, 
six-minute walk test and peripheral muscle force test and responded to questionnaires on health-related quality of life and functional status. Time spent active and energy expenditure in daily life was not significantly altered in either group. Exercise capacity and muscle force significantly improved only in the endurance and strength group. Health-related quality of life and functional status improved significantly in both groups. The authors concluded that neither training program significantly improved time spent active or energy expenditure in daily life. Exercise capacity and muscle force significantly improved only in the high-intensity endurance and strength group. The effects of exercise training programs on physical activity and daily life was evaluated by Probst et al. and patients with COPD. The two exercise training regimens were a high-intensity whole-body endurance and strength program and a low-intensity calisthenics and breathing exercises program. Neither training program significantly improved time spent active or energy expenditure in daily life. The training regimens similarly improved quality of life and functional status. Exercise capacity and muscle force significantly improved only in the high-intensity endurance and strength group. Distance Learning and the Internet in Respiratory Therapy Education is by Varicogis et al. The objective of this study was to assess current uses of distance learning and opinions concerning the appropriate use of distance education in respiratory therapy education programs. A 13-item online survey was designed to collect information about the frequency of use of various types of distance education typically utilized in respiratory therapy education programs. The survey was sent to directors of 343 Committee on Accreditation for Respiratory Care accredited programs of RT education that offer entry-level or advanced courses of study. The response rate was 50%. 52% of the respondents indicated that their courses included some form of online learning component. Most directors anticipated that the distance composition of their course offerings will remain unchanged or increase in the near future. The authors conclude that their results indicate that, while distance education plays an important supportive role in respiratory therapy education, there is still a preference for face-to-face -face instruction and internet-facilitated courses among program directors. Program directors continue to view the laboratory and clinical settings as hands-on environments that require instructor supervision in order for students to demonstrate proficiency in critical thinking skills. The respiratory care profession continues to grow both in number and scope of practice. Instructional technology, including distance learning, will probably play a key role in educating RT students to meet the increasing demand for practitioners. Farekagis et al. found that while distance education plays an important supportive role in RT education, there is still a preference for face-to-face -face instruction and internet-facilitated courses among program directors. The laboratory and clinical settings are hands-on environments that require instructor supervision in order for students to demonstrate proficiency and critical thinking skills. Next, we have the paper, 
time to desaturation less than one minute predicts the need for long-term home oxygen therapy by Garcia Talavera et al. 83 patients with moderate to severe COPD and a PaO2 greater than 60 millimeters mercury who desaturated during the six-minute walk test were followed for five years. 48 patients had early desaturation, in which SpO2 fell below 90% less than one minute after starting the walk test. Spirometry, blood gas measurements, and six-minute walk tests were performed every six months. The authors recorded six-minute walk distance, baseline SpO2, lowest SpO2, and the time to SpO2 less than 90%. In each control, stable patients with severe hypoxia at rest who required long-term oxygen therapy were identified. Upon completion of the study, 65% of early desaturators had developed severe hypoxemia and required long-term home oxygen versus 11% in the non-early desaturation group. The authors conclude that, in patients with moderate to severe COPD, desaturation within the first minute of the six-minute walk test predicts the need for long-term home oxygen at five-year follow-up. Exercise desaturation in patients with COPD is a pathophysiological phenomenon that is not wholly understood and whose clinical consequences are still unclear. Garcia Talavera et al. reported that in patients with moderate to severe COPD, desaturation within the first minute of the six-minute walk test predicts the need for long-term home oxygen at five-year follow-up. Bacteriological differences between COPD exacerbation and community-acquired pneumonia is by Lee and colleagues. The objective of this study was to evaluate the differences in pathogen distribution and antibiotic susceptibility between patients with COPD exacerbation and patients with community-acquired pneumonia and develop guidance for antibiotic treatments of those conditions. The authors retrospectively analyzed the medical records of 586 patients with COPD exacerbation and 345 patients with community-acquired pneumonia from January 2007 to December 2008. 47% of the patients with COPD exacerbation and 53% of the patients with community-acquired pneumonia had a positive sputum culture. Pseudomonas aeruginosa was the most common pathogen in the patients with COPD exacerbation, and Streptococcus pneumoniae was the most common in the patients with community-acquired pneumonia. Pseudomonas aeruginosa was especially common in patients with serious or extremely serious COPD. Lee et al. evaluated the bacteriological differences between COPD exacerbation and community-acquired pneumonia. It is interesting that knowledge of this pattern of infection might be helpful to guide appropriate therapy. For patients in this study, Pseudomonas aeruginosa was the most common pathogen in patients with COPD exacerbation, and Streptococcus pneumoniae was the most common in the patients with community-acquired pneumonia. Pseudomonas aeruginosa was especially common in the patients with serious or extremely serious COPD. Next, we have the paper Endotracheal Tube Extubation Force, 
Adhesive Tape versus Endotracheal Tube Holder by Shimizu and colleagues. The authors orally intubated a simulation mannequin with a standard 8mm inner diameter endotracheal tube, inflated the cuff to 20 centimeters of water, and measured the force required to extubate with the tube secured in several ways. They tested three brands of tape with six methods and two commercially available endotracheal tube holders with one method. They also tested a bite block with two methods. They used a releasable cable tie with a bite block and or the endotracheal tube holder. They connected the endotracheal tube to a digital force gauge and pulled perpendicular to the oral cavity until the entire cuff was removed from the trachea. In each trial, they considered the largest force recorded as the extubation force. One of the conventional tape methods, with wider tape and longer tape strips, required the largest force to extubate. The authors conclude that, with the tape strips of sufficient length and width, a conventional tape method was superior to the two tested commercial endotracheal tube holders in holding the tube in place in the mannequin. Adhesive tape is commonly used to secure the endotracheal tube in anesthesia and intensive care settings. Shimizu et al. compared endotracheal tube extubation force with adhesive tape versus an endotracheal tube holder. Interestingly, with tape strips of sufficient length and width, a conventional tape method was superior to the two tested commercial endotracheal tube holders in holding the tube in place in a mannequin. Our final research paper this month is Effect of CPAP on Oxidative Stress and Circulating Progenitor Cell Levels in Sleep Patients with Apnea Hypopnea Syndrome by Murray and colleagues. The objective of this study was to evaluate whether one month of CPAP treatment affects circulating progenitor cell levels and oxidative stress in patients with sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome. The authors enrolled 13 patients with sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome who required nasal CPAP. They evaluated white blood cell oxidative stress and CD45 negative, CD34 positive, KDR positive, and CD133 positive cell levels via flow cytometry before and one month after CPAP treatment superoxide anion and hydrogen peroxide were reduced, and markers of protection against oxidative stress were increased after CPAP. Progenitor cell levels increased significantly after CPAP. There was a significant negative correlation between CD45 negative, CD34 positive, KDR positive, and CD133 positive cell levels, and the severity of sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome and superoxide anion. The authors conclude that CD45 negative, CD34 positive, KDR positive, and CD133 positive cell levels rose significantly and reached values close to those in the control group after one month of CPAP. This change was accompanied by a significant decrease in oxidative stress and no change in anthropometric or metabolic variables, including insulin resistance, weight, blood pressure, or lipid levels. Consequently, the increase in progenitor cell levels might be attributable to reduced oxidative stress. 
The sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome is associated with elevated oxidative stress, which is associated with reduced levels of and functional impairment of progenitor cells. In 13 patients with sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome who required nasal CPAP, Murray et al. found that progenitor cell levels rose significantly and reached values close to those in the control group after one month of CPAP. This was accompanied by a significant decrease in oxidative stress. This month's case reports relate to surgical resection and liposomal amphotericin B to treat cavitary pulmonary zygomycosis in a patient with diabetes. High-frequency chest wall oscillation in an NIV-dependent patient with type 1 spinal muscular atrophy and pulmonary hypertension as a fatal complication of neurofibromatosis type 1. The teaching cases this month are acute hypoxemic respiratory failure in sarcoidosis and skin ulcers as a sign of disseminated tuberculosis. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.